Continuing on in John chapter 7, we, we finished up John chapter 6 today, and, and what a chapter that was. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you've seen uh, the beauty that's in it and all the things it covered. And, and what a way to end uh, in this picture that is going on, the story that is unfolding before our eyes to see all these people who claim to be uh, followers of him just up and left him because they weren't truly his followers. They weren't truly following him for the right reasons. And we know that Jesus turned to the twelve and asked them if they were going to go as well, if they were going to leave him. And he, Peter gives that great answer, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Jesus then says, did I not choose you the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Speaking of Judas, he wanted them to know that even though that twelve may look small, that number was going to get less. And that they were to still hold to the truth no matter how many left and no matter what the number was. Because truth is truth and truth doesn't change based on numbers. Truth is of God and it's unchanging. And, and that's where we left off. And we'll read verse 1 through 14. You know, sometimes the hardest thing in some of these sermons is to really determine where you're going to stop. Because you could, there's maybe a lot that, you could cover in a story, but then you don't want to get it so far out that you've kind of diluted everything and you rush through it. But then you don't want to under, you know, not do as many verses and you're, you've only been for 15 minutes. Can you imagine that? And then you're done. We don't want to do that either. That's silly. So the, the hard part is to find where to stop. And we're going to agree that we're going to stop on verse 14 tonight. So if you want to follow with me, we'll read John chapter 7 verses 1 through 14. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things... Show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, My time is not yet here, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying, He's a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews." But when it was now the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. And you know what they're going to hear? His words, which is what we talked about today. It would be by those words you would believe or not believe. And I will tell you this just to give you a kind of a heads up of what's going to happen. These Jewish people, these Pharisees, they're going to hear those words and their hatred is just going to continue to grow. This is the drama. 
This is the anger. This is the hatred that is going to build up now that Jesus is back in Judea and he's going to face opposition all along the way until he's on a cross because of the words that he speaks and the truths that he holds to. Let's begin to look at this, but let's pray first, okay? Father, thank you again for this time to come. Thank you for the, the, the privilege, the opportunity, Father. And I pray tonight that we would just, uh, just have all distractions leave our mind. And Lord, we would focus on you and your word. Let our hearts just be opened and changed, Lord, by the, the God, the Holy Spirit, that, that, that he would work in us now to receive these truths, to, to understand these truths, because without uh, you, God, we cannot make sense of anything. So, Father, please... Please show us the truths. Please, Lord, help us to draw closer to you. And Lord, let us worship you more and more as we see you and who you truly are in all your sacred scripture. And Lord, let us know that the words that we hear tonight are your words and they are truth. And let us believe them because in them are eternal life. We pray for help tonight. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen. We talked about this briefly today, but so often we, we start to look and we wonder, or we, we get so maybe just casual in reading that we, we look and we say, hey, well, it's a new chapter. It's chapter seven. And after these things, and we see that little phrase, after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And it looks just on the surface like that's the next day. After this event, here comes this next scene in John chapter 7. But that's not quite the case. Because we, we must understand that, that, that there's sometimes big, long periods in between chapters or events or stories that we must be mindful of. And that's the case here. So between chapter 6 and chapter 7, there's roughly about seven, six to seven months. There's about a half a year that's going on here in between these two chapters. And we know that because... In verse 2, it's going to tell us now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths was near. And then we're going to go back to John chapter uh, 6, verse 4, and it's going to say now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. So in John chapter 6, we see it's the Passover, and that takes place in March or April of the year. And we know that the feast of booths is going to take place in September slash October. So if we do the math there, we're looking at about a six. Period, a month period of time that has passed from those leaving him that day. And now this scene we find in John chapter 7. Like I said also this morning, just to recap, the gospel according to John does not tell us what happens in those six months. He, wasn't, he, won't, he doesn't tell us that. John's gospel is unique because so much time is going to be geared on Jesus' last week on earth. Remember, he starts in the beginning, before the world was, here's God, the eternal Logos. He leaves out Bethlehem, he leaves out all that stuff. He starts to the divine nature of God. And his gospel account is different because when we get to chapter 13, that is nearing the end of Christ's life. So a great majority of the gospel according to John is in that last week and in the last moments of Christ's life. So when we're in... It, in God's, John's gospel, we don't have all the details necessarily that the other gospel accounts do. But the other gospel accounts do tell us what's going on. And in this, in this time, this period of time, remember we spoke today about it's easy to build a crowd, but hard to make a disciple. But that's what's exactly going on in this time. 
Because in this time, after all those had left, and it was his 12 there, he then leaves and he goes up to Galilee. And Galilee is the northern uh, part of this area. It's Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle, Judea in the south. And we know that through his ministry, he's kind of been working this up and down. We know that there's been certain things that have already taken place in Galilee. His, one of his first sign miracles in John chapter 2, the wedding in Cana, that was in Galilee. We know that there was that royal official son in John chapter 5 who was healed. Jesus says, you just go and he's healed. That took place in Galilee. So he's been there before. He's went up and down. But after this scene in John chapter 6, after his disciples, all those that claim to be his disciples, after they leave, he's left with the 12. He then leaves the southern region there of Judea, and he goes up to the northern part of Galilee, and for six months, he's there. And it's almost like this this whole time, he's still doing miracles. He's still doing things that uh, only God can do. But it's almost like he takes this time and he doesn't go into a lot of the bigger areas, but he, he pulls himself back to the fringes, the, the border areas of Galilee. And he spends a lot of his time really being intimate and training the disciples. It's almost like he's getting them geared up for what's going to happen when he goes back into Jerusalem. And in this six-month period, in this time in between six and seven, we know that he's going to tell them that he's going to die. What news that would have been to their ears. You remember that so many of the people at that time thought that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would be the one who would overtake political Rome and, and set them free that way. But his kingdom was not of this world. It was of the heavens and it was going to be a whole different kingdom that he was going to bring into place. And it's in this six-month period that he's being intimate with those disciples and he's saying, I'm going to die. He's also telling them that not only is he going to die, they're going to persecute them. Be ready. They're, you're going to be persecuted. They're going to they're do everything they can to, to take your life. Be ready. It's this moment of building this relationship, teaching them all the things that are getting ready to take place. Because as we see in this text, even though they're not in that area, the storm is brewing. The hatred is is escalating, even though he's not there. Word of, of who he is and the things he continues to do, coupled with what he's just done in Judea. All that, all the things he's already done, all the things they're hearing, they hate Jesus. And even though he's not there, they are plotting, they are ready for him, and if he ever comes back, boy, he's going to get it. Well, he's coming back. But in this moment, in this period of time, before he goes back, he's preparing the disciples. I'm going to die. You're going to be persecuted like you've never been persecuted. And oh, by the way, if you need, if you need just some encouragement for you to really know I am who I say I am. You know what also happened in this six-month period? He showed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew 16, we talked about that today, where Peter would declare that he is the Messiah. And in the next chapter, Matthew 17, he takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain, and it's, he shows them his glory. And they drop to the ground like dead men. And out of heaven comes the voice from the Father, This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. It is almost like the, 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 the skin of humanity is, it has been uh, veiling his glory. And in just that one moment, it's almost like he just unzips his humanity and just says, look, this is who I truly am. I am the eternal Logos. I'm going to die. They hate me. They're going to hate you. But look, I am who I say I am. 
He shows him his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. All this is going on between chapter 6 and 7. It's, he's teaching them. He's building them up. He's getting them ready. And in Jerusalem, you have the hatred and the anger and the hostility brewing. You have these two worlds that are going to meet. And this is where we start to see those two worlds meet. Is in John chapter 7. After these things, Jesus walking in Galilee, where he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of the Booths was near. The Feast of the Booths is uh, one of the, f- the feasts. It's one of the fall festivals. It's the last of the, uh, the, the, the fall fe- the feast that they celebrate. This was one of the feasts that every male Jew was required to go to three feasts. It would have been Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths. And, and Jesus was a perfect man, and he was fulfilling all righteousness. So this was according to the law that he was to go and do. So we know he's going to go. Him not going is going to be a big problem, but he knows knows he's going to go, but he's on a specific timeline that is of God the Father. He's not going to be rushed into it. He's not going to be late for one second. Everything that Jesus is going to do on this earth, everything that he does, every person that he's in contact with, every place that he shows up to, I promise you this, it's at the exact perfect second that has been decreed and ordained by the Father. His ministry is, is one that is, is pleasing to the Father. He, the Father sent him to do this work in every place, every time, everything is perfect, including his re-entrance into Judea. His brother's going to try to push him there sooner, and he says, my hour's not yet come. But the Feast of the Boots, and that's important, we'll do a little type and shadow on this at the end, but this was a, a feast that it's sometimes referred as booths, Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and it was an Old Testament feast. And this was in conjunction with Israel's harvest of grapes and olives. It was a time of celebration. Some historians such as Josephus will say it was the, the, the feast that was one that brought the most celebration and such joyous occasion. And the reason that it's called Feast of Booths is because for seven days, they were required to build booths or tents and they were to live in these booths or tents that they had made for seven days. And the reason they were to do that is because they are in remembrance of their time in the wilderness. If you remember that while they were in the wilderness journey, that the, the tabernacle, the holy place of God, where God's uh, presence dwelled in the tabernacle, where all the sacrifice took place, where the holy of holies was, that was the tent, that was the tabernacle, that was at the center of the camp as they traveled, they took it with them. And outside of that, the camp was set up and they all dwelt in tents. So here they are remembering how God provided for them and he walked with them and he fellowshiped with them. So they built tents for seven days and they dwelt in them as a remembrance of God being with them. And this is the feast that's taking place. This is where Jesus is going to go back to, into Jerusalem. Keep that in mind. Verse 3 says, Therefore his brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret which he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now this is peculiar to me a little bit. We have, I can't tell you 100% why they wanted him to go so bad to Jerusalem at this time. Because we get a clue that they're not, they don't even believe that he's the Messiah. Think about this. Look at what verse 5 says. For not even his brothers were believing in him. You want to see a verse that I believe talks about how man is unable to come to the truths of God without the sovereign hand of God showing them? 
that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. I mean, they're around him all growing up. They see that he never does anything wrong. He never, he never back talks his parents like they do. He never gets angry. He's perfect. He's doing all these things in his ministry. And they don't believe him. You know why they don't believe him? Even though they're with him and that, that, they, those are his brothers. Do you know why? Because unless it's granted by the Father, they can't believe. I don't care if you're Jesus' brother. I don't care if you're Jesus' mother. Mary had to have her eyes open to the gospel of Christ. Mary was not perfect. Mary needed a Savior. And here's the reality. Mary was unable to do that on her own. The sovereign hand of God had to come to her heart and reveal the truths about Jesus to her. What a verse. His brothers didn't believe him. Jesus is pushing 32, 33 years old around this time. They've seen what he's done. They know what he's doing. They know what he's proclaiming. Do you know what they don't believe? His words. They don't believe his words. His own brothers. And we know that his brothers um, will eventually come to believe. In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, it tells us that they're there and they're believing. So, from the time of John chapter 7 until Acts, somewhere in that time, God the Father draws His brothers to the truth and they are converted. What's even more amazing about this is if you were to turn in the back of your Bible, you will find a book in, called James. That's one of Jesus' brothers who in this point in his life did not believe. We're less than a half a year away from the time he's going to die. And the one who's going to write the epistle of James still doesn't believe in him. It's amazing to see these timelines as we work through the Bible. They don't believe in him because the Father has not drawn them. They've not been granted this permission yet. But don't worry, they will be because they were given before the world was. It's the same for every human being. So why do they want him to go so bad? Why do they want him to go so bad? They said, listen, you, you can't do these things in secret. If you really are doing these things, go. You, you don't do it in secret, the things you're trying to make known publicly. Go. Now, I've heard some different opinions on this. Some say, well, they're so jealous of him. You know, you know how it is. If you've got one child that seems to be the, the golden child and you got the other ones that, yeah, you know how it works. It's like other people get jealous and they say, you know how this goes. And maybe that they were so jealous and they knew the Jews were angry with him. The Jews were trying to kill him. So, hey, if we can get him down there quicker, maybe they'll take care of him for us. I don't necessarily think that's the truth. That's one of the opinions that's out there. I don't buy to that opinion. I think it's shown more in the clues of what they're wanting him to do. You remember when, after he fed the 5,000 or the 20,000, he multiplied the bread? Do you remember why they wanted to take him king? Because of everything that he could do for them. All the things they could benefit from. And now maybe here, his brothers know that if he can do these things in Jerusalem, which is the, just the, the foundational level of all things religious in that time, if he can go win them over in Jerusalem now, then maybe we can ride the coattails of him. Maybe he can be this king, be this leader, be this ruler. Maybe he can uh, finally come to his senses and be the ruler of the people that they want. And now that we're his brothers, and maybe he'll give us a seat at the table and maybe we can have fame and notoriety as well. Go show him what you can do. 
Maybe they'll take you as king again. Maybe they'll, you'll win the whole place over and that, that we could piggyback off of that. I don't know. I would love to tell you that I know 100%. I don't know. I think that sometimes we have to come to a text and say, the Bible doesn't tell us that, so we don't know. But if I had to put a guess on it, I think they were trying to use him for some kind of gain of themselves. I could be wrong, but that's, that's the way that I see it. The Bible doesn't tell us. But either way, they're trying to get him to go. And what does he tell them? My time is not yet here, verse 6, but your time is always opportune. What does this remind you of? Do you ever remember a story that we covered at the very first couple chapters in the book of John at the wedding at Cana? Do you remember when the wine ran out and Mary comes to Jesus and starts to ask him if he will help? What is his response to her? Woman, my time is not yet come. I'm not on your timeline. Yes, you're my mother, but I'm not on your timeline. I'm on the timeline of my father. And yes, you're my brothers, but you're not going to tell me when to go and how to go. I'm on a whole different timeline. I'm on the divine timeline from above. And that's what he tells them. And there's multiple verses on the hour that is to come. We know that that full hour that he's talking about is his hour to where darkness would reign and he would die upon a cross. On your sheet there, you have verses that speak of that. John 7, 30, John 8, 20, John 12, 23 and 27, Mark 14, 35 and 41. You can go read those later. That is his hour that is yet to come. But that hour is not yet come. And he's not going to be pressured to go according to what they want him to do in their timelines. I find this interesting as well, that in the wedding at Cana, he tells his mother... My time has not yet come. And he still helped her out and did what he, she asked him to do. Or she asked him to do, yeah. And here, they're like, you need to go down to the Feast of Booths. I'll go on my own time. He eventually goes to the Feast of Booths. Like, he's going to do these things, but he's under no obligation by man. That's important here to see. And then verse 7 is quite telling. He tells them something very hard. We talked about that today. Hard truths, right? Look at what he says. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify it, of it that its deeds are evil. The world cannot hate you. The world does not hate his own. Darkness loves darkness. You don't believe in me. You don't have to worry about this world persecuting you in that manner. It hates me and it cannot hate you. It cannot hate its own. But darkness rejoices with darkness. Light rejoices with light. The world cannot hate you. Not that it won't. It does not. It cannot hate you. And we have verse after verse that is going to tell us this, this truth as well. Listen, they hate me in Jerusalem. They hate me when I speak the truth to these ungodly people. They don't hate you. They, they embrace you because you're just like them. The world hates its own or loves its own and hates the light. Isn't that what he tells us in John chapter 3? You remember this verse where he says, this is judgment. That the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. And this is what he tells them in this verse. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Christ comes into this world. He shines light upon all their darkness. He exposes all their, their sin. He calls them out on all the things that they're doing that are wrong. And they can't stand his words. 
the Pharisees, who were the elite of the elite considered by most people of that time, when he begins to expose them and show how uh, hypocrisy is running their life, how hypocritical they are. You know what they can't stand? They can't stand his words. Light and darkness hate each other. Or the light and the darkness don't come together. They, those who are in the darkness do not come to the light because they hate the light. Let us never forget that. When we are in this world, when we are testifying to the truths of the gospel, the world cannot hate itself but it will hate those who speak the truth. Because if you're a child of the light, the Bible tells that we're children of the light. And here in John chapter 3, it says, for everyone who does evil hates the light. That means they hate God. And if you're a child of God, they hate you too. That shouldn't come as a surprise to us. That shouldn't come as a surprise that we are going to be hated people. He goes on to tell us in John 15, verses 18 through 20, he's talking to his disciples. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And the reason it hates you is because it hates me. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He looks right at his brothers and says, the world can't hate you. The world loves you. The world embraces you. But it hates me. You want me to go to Jerusalem? I'm going to go. But the place I'm going back into, I am going to face severe hatred because I'm the light. I testify of how evil their deeds are. Perry, I have to do this, man. John 17, if I could. In this high priestly prayer, verses 14 through 16, Jesus praying says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Listen to that statement. The true believer in him is not of the world just as he is not of the world. What a statement. We are always looking for acceptance and God in his word, which we are called to believe, says that the darkness will hate the light. The words that you speak will be hated by the darkness. Do you still hold to them? Do you still hold to them? That's what we're called to do. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. What a statement. There are, the lines are being drawn. He's going to go back into this hostile territory, and he's telling his brothers, listen, You're going to go back into Jerusalem. You're going to be just fine. You're going to be just fine. You're going to fit in right along with the Pharisees. No one's going to bother you. It's all going to be okay. But me, my words offend them. My words call out their evil. They hate me. And I think it's important tonight as believers to know that that is what is upon us as well that they will hate us for the words we speak because we are in union with Christ and they hate him. He goes on to say this in verse 8, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. 
Having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as in secret. Again, he's going to go, but he's going to go at the perfect time. And that perfect time has been ordained by the Father. I want you to think about this perfect timeline. I want you to see the sovereign hand of God just for a moment. I go back to John chapter 4. Who did he meet at a well? It was a woman at a well, wasn't it? And she's only going to be there a certain part of the day. You think it was a coincidence that he just happened to show up in Sigar there in Samaria? At that time she was there? No. That was on the divine timetable before the world was. She had a date to meet the eternal God that day, and it was right on time. Perfectly on time. And you can go through every story in the Bible, and you can say, oh, well, he come across that person. Great coincidence. No, it's not. He met the, every person at the right exact moments, at the right exact place on earth, and accomplished the exact thing that he was sent to do. Put that into your life. Everything is still ordained. Everything comes to pass. As it is decreed by God, He knows the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is to come. It is His purpose that is established, and it is His plan that will always come into pass. Every person that you meet, every, you know, Perry was talking about a lady yesterday, or the other day he met at the gas station, had a great talk with her. That was not on an accident. That's the divine timeline of heaven being acted out in real time on this earth. Everything is perfect and on the right time of God. It is working out as it should be. It is under His control. And that's the same thing as we work through these Gospels. Everything of Christ is on the perfect time. It's been ordained. It's coming to pass at the right time. That's like when Jesus would die. It would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Why would that be? Why would he take his last breath at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Why not 2.59? Why not 3.01? Why not 3.10? Why 3 o'clock in the afternoon? The divine timetable says that that is the day to the moment 3 in the afternoon to which if we go back to the Old Testament, they would offer a Passover lamb. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, the Passover lamb would be slain. But Christ, the true Passover lamb, would come. And at 3 o'clock in the afternoon... He would breathe his last as he is the true and the complete fulfillment of that Passover lamb. Why didn't they come and arrest him and take him in John 7 and John 8 and John 9 and John 10 and John 11? And John, why not? It was not his time. It was working out to perfection under the sovereign hand of God. Keep an eye on that as we work through these next chapters. They come to seize him. Jesus disappeared. They went to throw stones at him. Where'd he go? Because it's not his time. God is on a perfect time schedule while he was walking on earth and while he's doing and running the planet now. Have confidence. Know that God is sovereign in all things. He says, I'm going to go in my time. And he does. Look in verse 
number 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, where is he? They know he's a Jew. They know he's required to come. And the buzz in that place is, where is he? Where is this Jesus? We know he's got to be here. Where's he at? Remember where, where this whole thing started. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. And now they're licking their chops. We know he's got to be here. We can get him now. You'll get him when he willingly lays down his life. That's when this will end. Where are, where's he at? Verse 12, they were much grumbling among the crowds concerning him, saying he's a good man. Others were saying no. On the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. You had what we call the diaspora, these people outside of Jerusalem that were Jews. They were ascending on Jerusalem. They were coming on Jerusalem. It was a great number of people. And the consensus was he's a good man. Some were saying that, but that fell short of what he was. He's not a, he, he is good. There's only one that's good. Only God is good. But he's more than just a good man. That brings you to the level of a Muslim. They believe that Jesus was a good man, a prophet. But you must believe he's the eternal son of God that come in the flesh to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's more than a good man. That's selling it short. And others have said the opposite. We've heard his words. And he's a deceiver. We even see that after, after he's been crucified and they're guarding the tomb in the ending of Matthew. And he says, do you remember when that deceiver said that he would be raised from the dead after three days? Some believed he was a deceiver. What's, a, what's amazing about this whole thing is like, his, like when he tells his brothers, listen, you're not a true believer. You're, you're, the world hates you. They can't hate you. It hates me. And they weren't believing in him. And these who weren't believing in him here Who's the real deceiver? They're following the true deceiver. The devil, the father of all lives. John 8, 44 says he's the father of all lies. And they're truly following the great deceiver because in Christ, his words are absolute true. But again, you see the fear of the Jews. The fear of the Jews is running rampant here. The Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders. And no one wants to say anything about this Jesus out in the public. Why? Because they are fearful of what will come. If someone hears them, surely that's not the case with us. Surely we wouldn't go into the workplace and be a little scared to talk about Christ for fear of who? These people want to kill Christ. Who would we be fearful of? Who in your family would you be fearful of? Who in your coworkers would you be fearful of? I would love to tell them who Jesus is, but for fear of whoever, they did not. That's a challenge, isn't it? That we're not to be afraid of those around us. But we are to declare the truth in the words and be ready to be hated for it. That's the question. Are you ready to be hated for the words you speak? Because the Bible says the world cannot hate its own, but it hates the light. See how it goes back into what we've talked about today? You willing to hold to these words? These are eternal life. You willing to hold to them? This is a theme that continues to run in these sections of Scripture. And then verse 14 comes. And Jesus, in a bold, absolutely amazing move, knows that they hate him, knows they're trying to kill him. And you know what? He's not hiding a bit. He walks into this middle of the feast. 
and he walks into the temple and he begins to teach. Can you imagine the scene that day? Where is he? We hate this man. Six months they've just been festering on this anger and this hatred. And now we've got him. Now he's got to come. And now we're going to give it to him. Where is he? Oh, he's in the temple teaching the same words that could lead people to eternal life. But those same words would continue to drive hatred in the hearts of the unbeliever. And these words that he's going to speak, you're going to see as we continue through this section in the coming weeks, he's going to go and he's going to speak these hard truths. And you just watch the hatred that is going to intensify with him speaking these words. He's not going to back down. He's going to deny them. He's not going to go into hiding. He is here in Jerusalem. His time has almost come. And he is going to declare the message that the Father has sent him to declare. Unashamed. Without fear. And it's going to bring hatred. That is the message that we are to proclaim the gospel truth. And it may bring the same persecution. It may bring the same hatred, but we must stand. It is by the words that we hold to that are found in Christ that bring life. It's either going to bring life or it's going to bring hatred. And that is light versus darkness. I wanted to end there because you see that it's going to build upon the words that he's going to speak. We've set this drama up to where now he's in the place to where all the people want to kill him. All the leaders, they hate him, they want to kill him. Now he's here. And now these next few chapters are going to see, you're going to see this. You're going to see Jesus answering them and they get mad and they want to kill him and all this is going to happen. The scene has begun. He's in Jerusalem. His time is nearing. He's going to go and die on a cross for those whom are his. But this is the drama leading up to that point. Again, it comes down to the words that he speaks. It's either life, it is life, and you either believe it and you have a life, or you continue to grow hard in your heart and hate it more and more. And it would be these words that he would eventually speak that would put him on a cross. His claims of being God, his claims of all these things would be what put him on that cross under the sovereign hand of God. Do you see the drama building? I could have went down a lot longer in this chapter. You could have seen the whole thing, but we would, it would just, I think it would just take away from it. We would rush through it too fast. I want you to see that he's been away for six months. He's been preparing his disciples. The, the Jews there, they hate him. And now he comes back on his own timeline at the right time, at the right moment, with the right message. In the words he's going to speak, some will believe unto eternal life, but the most will continue to hate him all the more until it leads to death on a cross. So the question arises tonight, what are your thoughts on the words of God? What are your thoughts on His words, the teachings of Him? Well, we know the world hates God and the, world's, the Word of God. And however, we as believers, we should expect that too. I think it can tell a lot about our boldness and witness when we really never have anybody that really really is upset with us a lot of times because we're really not speaking the truth. 
right? I mean, like you see this all over the Bible. They speak the truth. They're offended by the words. People are offended by the words and they dislike the disciples. They dislike the, the, his followers. But so often we've, we've never, we're so just sometimes not confident or not bold enough to witness that no one even has anything against us because they're not hearing the words that they hate. We're all guilty of that, aren't we? For fear of fill in the blank. We don't want to be disliked. But when the world hears the words that they hate, it should be a, it should be a reality to, to us. He says it will happen. The believer should not hate the words of God, but should love them, should cling to them, should hold on to his word and sacred scripture because in them is spirit and life. You must believe the words of God to have eternal life. There are no other words that give life. There's no other way. But his word and his gospel. And this is the message that we must take into the world. You're looking for peace. It's only one place. You're looking for life. It's only one place. Those are the words that they have to hear. That's the seed that is being planted. Some will stick because their heart has changed and some will not. They will grow harder and harder and hate it. But you and I are called to take this message to the world. Even if you're down to 11 or four or five, we're called to do it. Jesus was on a divine timeline. We see it here. He was not going to be rushed at the wedding of Cana. He was not going to be rushed here. Because he's under this, this ordained plan by the Father. And we know this would take great fulfillment, the final fulfillment, when he hangs on a cross to redeem his people. But also, there's another timeline that we're going to look at. We look at the Middle East. We start to think about the end times. Everybody has their own view on it. I'm going to hold with John Newton here, the writer of Amazing Grace. As I said before, is one of his famous sayings that I love. It says this, the one political maxim that comforts me, the Lord reigns. You know, that's how I'm getting through all this. The Lord reigns. And he was on a timetable to come into this world, wasn't he? Remember, it says, when the fullness of time came, God took on flesh and entered into his creation. The fullness of time, the perfection of time, the moment from all eternity past where he would come and enter his creation. It wasn't a moment too soon, a moment too late. It was the fullness of time, the perfect moment that he came. It was the perfect moment that he went to the Feast of Booths. It was the perfect moment he was arrested. It was the perfect moment he was on the cross. It was the perfect moment he was raised from the dead. But there's going to be a perfect moment to where he comes to gather his bride and to judge the living and the dead. That is a divine timeline that has been established, that has been decreed. It is set and it will happen. And it will not happen a moment too soon, a moment too late. He will come back at the exact perfect time. And those who believe his words, they will have life because in his words in the gospel is life. But those who do not, they will face eternal damnation. Do we believe his word in the middle of hatred of the world? You see how these two stories mix. The disciples all left. Do you still hold to the truth? The world hates him. He goes into the middle of it. He's still teaching the same truth, the same gospel, the same words, which will bring hatred. And it's in that moment of hatred and, and, 
and persecution that we must say, where else would we go? What other gospel is there? There's no other gospel. Let us be resolved in our hearts tonight to stand for all truth, even if everyone around us hates us. I want to end with this. Talking about the Feast of Booths. I think this is a pretty amazing thing. And again, this is just a real quick, uh, real quick teaching on it. Not, in, it, it, we could do a whole sermon on it, maybe two. But we remembered and said that they would live in these tents for seven days because it was a remembrance of in the wilderness they dwelled in tents and God was in the middle of them. He was dwelling with them. And what do we find that is so amazing in Leviticus 23? We find that some of the, the items that were used to build these tents do you know what one of those items were? Palm branches. They had to build these tents, and one of the things they used was palm branches as a remembrance that God dwelt with them. God was in the middle of them. He tabernacled among them. That was what was required in the Old Testament, palm branches. And then we see in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word took on flesh, and the Greek word there is eskenosin, which means that he tabernacled us. He pitched his tent with us. He came and dwelled with us. So when it says that God came in the form of the Son and he dwelt with us, that is the same language of him dwelling and tabernacling with us as we find in the Old Testament. So he was in the middle of them, tabernacling them in the wilderness. And now he puts on flesh and he comes into this world. And now he's tabernacling the people there in the incarnation. And what happens on Palm Sunday as he comes in in this triumphant entry? What are they waving? Palm branches. Why? Because the eternal God is tabernacling them, is dwelling amongst them for this moment in time. And that is why they're waving palm branches as he's dwelling with them the same one that dwelt with him in the Old Testament. And then we come to Revelation chapter 7. We find this interesting verse of Scripture. In Revelation chapter 7, starting in verse 9, we see this picture of heaven. We see the ones who are there and they are being tabernacled and, and dwelling with God forever. And see if you find some mysterious item in, mentioned here. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could count from every nation in all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. And what was in their hand? Palm branches. Why would that be? It was a remembrance of Him dwelling with them in the wilderness. He dwelt with them in the incarnation here on this earth. And now, He dwells with them forever. 
This view of this palm branch is symbolic to say, you dwelt with us in the Old Testament in the wilderness. You dwelt with us in the incarnation. You dwelt with us in our hearts while we walked on this earth. But now this, this, we are nomads and we're pilgrims. And now that gives way to our final home in heaven. And now what we see is in heaven, waving these palm branches to say, now we are dwelling with God forever. And we are in his temple and he is tabernacling us forever and ever. That's beautiful. That's why the Feast of Booths is so amazing. It is showing that God dwelt with His people. He dwells with us now. And one day, we will finally dwell with Him in His tabernacle for all eternity. And here we see palm branches in their hands as a sign of His dwelling with us and Him with us forever. And we find the last portion of this in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. Remember, that word eskenosin is tabernacled, or he dwelt with. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, ready? The tabernacle of God is among men, and He will dwell among them, and they shall be His people, and God Himself will be among them. Remember, the word became flesh. That word means tabernacled. He tabernacled them in the Old Testament and now in heaven. We are tabernacled with God forever. That's why you see the palm branch reference. You know, I'll say this as we close. If you look back at that wilderness journey, the tabernacle was in the center and everything else was surrounded accordingly based on tribes and there was a certain way that it would flow. But they were only in those tents for a little bit of time. Right, That wilderness journey is like our walk here on earth. That we are led by God. He led them by fire and cloud, didn't He? As God leads us now by His Holy Spirit. He leads us. And one day, we are promised the promised land. We're promised that eternal home. They were promised the promised land. And on this journey, they were intense. And they were dwelling and living this life. And one day when they reached the promised land, those tents gave way to permanent residency. They didn't live in tents anymore. They lived in homes. And what does the Bible tell us in 2 Corinthians 5? He says, when these earthly tents, talking about our body, when they are done away with, what happens? Then we'll be with Him. And that's the story of our lives. He's dwelling with us now. He's tabernacling us now. He is God with us. He is in our midst. He is residing in us. He is leading us in this life. And we are in these temporary tents that are working and struggling through this life. We are in the wilderness. We are in these tents. But you keep marching. You keep going. Because He's called you to a glorification one day. And here's the promise. That one day He will bring us to that promised land. And these earthly tents will be no more. And we will have a permanent residency in the true promised land forever and ever. 
And we can say that we will forever be with God and he will dwell with us. And we as exiles, we as wanderers in the wilderness, will finally one day take our first step home. That's a glorious thought. You're in a tent right now. It's not your permanent home. This is not your permanent home. He dwelt with them in the Old Testament. He dwelt among them in the flesh, in His incarnation. Get your palm branches ready. One day you're going to wave them. And you're going to say like they did on that day, Hosanna, here is our God. And we will dwell with Him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, we give you all glory and praise. Lord, we have heard hard truths tonight that the world hates you and the world hates truth and the world hates light. And now you've called us to go into this world and speak those words that, are, that bring such resentment and hostility to so many people. But God, you've called us to do that. You've called us to spread the seed, which is your word. But Lord, let us be mindful that the world cannot hate its own. But those who are of the light, they hate. Let us have a greater understanding of that. Let us resolve in our hearts that that's the case. And Lord, let us not waver. But know that it was the same with you. And the student is not above the master. Lord, let us have greater boldness, have a greater desire to speak your truth. We claim that we love your word. We claim that we hold to your word. Well, Lord, let us show that by declaring your word. Let it reach the hearts of those that we speak to, we pray by your sovereign hand, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the perfect timeline you're on. We thank you for never being late. We thank you for being right on time all the time. Lord, let us rest in that. Father, we want to thank you that as your word teaches, you are the fulfillment of all these feasts, including the, including the Feast of Booths. Lord, I know you tabernacled them and dwelt with them in the Old Testament, and you became flesh and tabernacled us in the New Testament in your incarnation. But Lord, let us set our hearts and our minds and our eyes upon our home one day as we too are intense temporary tents called our earthly bodies, dwelling and wandering through this wilderness with the hope that one day that we will be in our permanent home, New Jerusalem, ever to dwell with you and forever you will be our God. We want to thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.